Hello, Silvertown. Welcome to Silvertown Podcast. Let's jump on that silver train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of recovery. I just want to mention real quick about the uh, SilvertownPodcast.com website. We have tons of resources in there. Thank you for the IS community for, for all that you give back. And this morning, again, we have Winged Victory. She's the, the creator, the owner, the author, the editor of Be Musings, and she has Boom Rethink the Drink. It's a community within the Booze Musings. If you just type in your browser, Boom Rethink the Drink, you can find her community. Wingy, I've been inside your community and I've been watching how all of you guys connect and you guys are amazing. It's just a, it's an amazing community. It's really easy to navigate through your community. You can add links. Everybody, it, it just seems like you have a lot of brilliant people in there and they're really, really striving for their sobriety. And it's just been a pleasure over the last week getting in, in there to watch how all of you guys interact. I'm just amazed because this morning I've been inside the Booze Musings website. So you have like over 800 articles on booze. Well, over 800 articles on booze musings, but not on booze. Um, 800 articles on the discovery that people evolve when they stop drinking. You know, uh, it's articles written by people talking about how they went alcohol free, what it means to them to be living alcohol free from everywhere from uh, one month or 10 days to eight years. Um, you know, it's a, a huge swath of humanity around the globe. Um, there are so many authors. I, I haven't counted in a long time how many, how many different authors we have on booze. But the idea is, of course, booze musings, rethink the drink. Um, so it's, we're not talking about booze. We're not talking about alcohol so much. We're talking about life, you know, and the life that we're living alcohol-free, how we got there, what it means to us. And then a lot of the articles that we were talking about this morning um, that, that I've written over the first few years that I was um, writing on this topic are on the toxic culture of, of marketing and the media concerning, concerning alcohol. So those, those articles are on booze, definitely. Um, but most of the articles on booze musings are about life, you know, living and this is what I've watched you do over the last week. I've watched where if somebody's talking about a certain issue, you've been able to reach in, grab one or two articles. And so you're not just like offering a suggestion. You're saying, here, here's an article with tons of information where you can go and read more about what you're talking about. That's the wonderful thing about having published each of those posts myself, even if I didn't write them. I either asked the, the author, you know, if, if I could publish them or the, the authors, sometimes it's a group of people, you know, that I've, I've put their posts together into an article, or it's a question that I've asked in the community and people have answered. And then I've asked if I can use their answers in, in a post. And um, there are also posts like that, but because I'm the editor, because I'm the one who puts everything together, I know what's there. And so it's very easy for me to find things quickly. And my whole interest with this project began because really I had this sort of archival interest in keeping these stories in one place where people could find them because I found the stories so 
inspiring to me. So yeah, I'm the I'm the archivist. And it doesn't matter if it's relapse or uh, the first days of sobriety into like like you said up to eight years. You have all this information in your mind. It's just it, it's amazing, and I love it. And it's really great to just watch you do this within because you're. So but I still can't spell. <laughs> you can't spell. I cannot spell. No, my um my rewired neural pathways have been have been feeding on words for the last um seven years since I stopped drinking. <laughs> um, but I cannot spell. No, no. Well, if it I, weren't for Grammarly, it would be tragic. <laughs> I use spell check all the time and then it sabotages me. <laughs> oh, does it? Yeah. 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 So, well, we have people who write English from an American uh, grammatical perspective and then people who write English as English people and people who write English as Australians and they're, they use different spellings. So my Grammarly, my Grammarly and I kind of struggle with each other sometimes because it wants me to do the, the American spelling, but sometimes the article is written from an English perspective. So the spellings are different. It can be really confusing for someone who's already challenged with how letters go together. Which and you live in Portugal. And I live in Portugal. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So today we want to talk a little bit about marketing and, and the Super Bowl. I got up a little early and I was looking around and I was looking at what the World Health Organization says about this, alcohol consumption contributes to 3 million deaths each year globally, as well as the, uh, to the disabilities and poor health of millions of people. Overall, harmful use of alcohol is responsible for 5.1% of the global burden of disease. And then the CDC, I went over there to see what they had to say about alcohol. And alcohol and cancer, um, drinking alcohol raises your risk of getting cancer, getting six kinds of cancer, mouth and throat, uh, voice box, esophagus, colon and rectum, liver, breast cancer in women. All alcoholic drinks, including red wine, white wine, beer, liquor are linked with cancer. The more you drink, the higher your risk. Is it, that's just amazing, isn't it? And they let this marketing... You know, it is it is amazing when you read those statistics. The statistics are horrifying, and they have been since the first time I read them. The problem is, though, that we have been brainwashed in so many different ways with our media, with marketing campaigns um, in our cultures to believe that alcohol is necessary to a life well lived, um, that drinking is fun, that it's part of becoming um, an adult, that it's part of you know, coming of age, that it's necessary, that it's the best treat that we can give ourselves. And so when we hear those statistics, I think that it's really difficult for people not to just simply reject them like automatically on a really deep level because the conditioning from the time we were little kids is that alcohol is the elixir of life. And we've also been trained to believe that it's not the product that's the problem with alcohol, it's the person. So we've been trained to look at statistics like that and think that, well, alcohol is fine as long as we drink it in moderation and it's actually a kind of a healthy adult pastime. It's a soft drug. 
it's better than uh, using marijuana to relax or, you know, heroin certainly or oxycodone. And, and so people tend to, on the one hand, think that they do need some sort of artificial relaxant, whether it be alcohol, nicotine, marijuana, um, heroin at the turn of the century, actually, it used to be heroin used to be quite accepted as something that was sort of a, a stress, a stress release kind of, kind of medicinal thing. We hear those statistics and we don't absorb them as about me. We hear those statistics and those are about somebody else. Even the recent statistics about cancer, that any amount of alcohol contributes to cancer, that any amount of alcohol damages your brain, that any amount of alcohol is bad for your heart. All of that erases everything they've been telling us for the last 20 years about how alcohol is heart healthy and alcohol is, is good to, to counteract cancer. People just don't seem to absorb it. We're so immersed in the necessity of drinking. And I, I think that our, our commercial culture is a big culprit in that. Yeah. And then even with their, their marketing, this doctor from nutritionfacts.org, he just put out an article, three quarters of their marketing is misleading with the facts they put out with the J curve, with how they've been trying to tell us that just a little bit is heart healthy. And it's all lies, really. Just another way for them to convince us that it's okay to have a little bit. Well, and yeah, and it's, it's very easy to convince people that it's okay. The thing about the thing about alcohol, you know, it's the perfect product because it is addictive, but it's addictive in a way that is for most people relatively slow. It takes time to become certainly dependent on alcohol. It takes a lot of time to become dependent on alcohol and a lot of use, but we can become addicted in a way that we don't function as fully or as comfortably without having the drink at the end of the day that we've become accustomed to. And we don't identify it as addiction because we're not dependent. But if you find that you get to the end of the day and you feel like you need a drink to relax, or if you go to a party and you need a drink to have fun, or if you're out on a date and you need a drink to feel intimate and close to another person, that is a neurological addiction that we develop. Even drinking relatively moderate alcohol or just occasionally binge drinking, you develop a neurological addiction to needing it. Like you need a pacifier, you know, when you're, when you're a baby. So it's, it's tricky because I think that in our culture, we've been trained to believe that you only have to stop drinking if you become alcohol dependent and that everyone else benefit so much from drinking and it's really not a big deal. And then these, these studies come out saying, yes, it is a big deal. And we just don't believe them. You know, we don't absorb them. And also they're buried with the, uh, these industries putting out counter uh, propaganda. Yeah, it does get buried in counter propaganda. And um, it's, you know, actually the, the article that I published today on booze musings has a, a video clip in it from a BBC documentary called The Century of Self. And it talks about the beginning of the use of propaganda outside of wartime as marketing, as um, image creation. 
and how that originated. And it's really a fascinating documentary. It's really a, a terrific thing to watch. If you stopped drinking, if you want to stop drinking and, and you want to understand how to, how to get away from this sort of culture of enabling. I watched a little bit of that. It shows how, like with the women with smoking. Oh my gosh. That's, that's so hard. It's so hard. Yeah. And, and then it, how they connected smoking with freedom, liberty. Yeah. And then they gave you visuals of women smoking. And these are black and white video clips. Yeah. From the turn of the last century, like the 1918-1920. I can't remember exactly when that started, but yeah. So yeah. it was just a propaganda campaign back there with cigarettes. And they had it everywhere. I mean, it was in buildings. Everywhere you turn, smoking was glamorous. It was the and it was so powerfully effective. And it, it's, it was repeated again in the 1960s with Virginia Slims. You know, if you go back and you look at the old Virginia Slims advertisements from the 1960s, they're all about empowerment. And I've got, I've got one of those clips in one of the articles on Booze Museums. I think it's called um, You Go Girl. And I found an old Virginia Slims advertising that was just exactly like the alcohol advertising you see now. It was like a mirror image of it. It, those things are so effective and they're so powerful. And I think that, you know, I grew up in the 1970s and I remember watching a documentary at school as part of a health class where they, they were showing us a little bit about how advertising works. And I think it was called Subliminal Seduction. That was a, a book that was published in the 70s that started to kind of pick apart advertising and say, look, this is, this is how it's working on your brain. I don't, I don't know if you remember this as a kid, but in the, in camel cigarettes on the outside of the package where you've got the drawing of the camel in the back leg of the camel, there's kind of a dot drawing of, of a man with an erection and every little kid, you know, in the 1970s, who heard about this idea of subliminal seduction from this book, from the documentary we watched at school, would find the guy, you know, in the, the back of, of the camel's leg. And we all knew where he was. And once you saw it, you couldn't unsee it. Right. But camel never took that off. You know, it's always been there. The, the man with the erection and the back leg of the camel on the front of the cigarettes. So we started talking about subliminal seduction and how marketing works on your brain. And I, I think there were some laws actually passed in the 70s, certainly with cigarette advertising. They, they really took apart the cigarette advertising. But with alcohol, they have not done that at all. There is alcohol advertising out there that is just mind numbing. And it's, it's, really, it's really important, I think, on a personal level to understand what's going on with that advertising so that it doesn't have the effect on you that it is very artfully designed to have. Yeah. And I was reading some more of the uh, literature there, how they're supposed to be overseeing that we're not misinformed when you look Isn't at that funny. Right. Right. <laughs> they're really over, and then you look, it's not supposed to be used for sex and all these, I mean, there's a, just this huge list of ways it's not supposed to be used. That alcohol is not supposed to be used. Right, for advertising. And I see, okay. And everybody, I mean, they sell us with sex. Uh, you're, you're, a, you're a better lover. You're a better, you do better sports. You're a better friend. You're happier. You have fun. They're selling ideas. And you know what? You talk about this advertisement in there with the Clydesdale 
that article. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. And I, you know, I love those advertisements. Even now when I watch them, I love those advertisements. They are so beautifully presented. The comb- I mean, the, it's like, if you think about how much companies spend for 60 seconds or 30 seconds of advertising on Super Bowl Sunday, the numbers are just astronomical. So they have the very best of the best creating these advertisements. And even now, even today, when I was putting that post together and I was picking which, which Budweiser advertisement I was going to include in it, the music, the cinematography, the storyline, it is just so heartwarming. You know, it's home, it's love, it's everything noble, you know, that there is. You just, you can't watch those Budweiser commercials without just feeling proud to be an American, you know, and you don't see beer at any moment. There's, you never see beer. Just at the very end, you see the Budweiser logo. It's, they're not, they're not selling the beer. They're selling the idea. They're selling a feeling. They're selling an idea. They're selling an image. They're selling, they are selling love, hope, brotherhood, home, family, and it's beer. You know, I mean, the thing is we think of beer that way, just like now we think of hard seltzer that way as well hard cider and and all of the alcoholic beverages that we think are soft in some way. And then wine, of course, we also perceive as kind of soft because it it's so sophisticated and it's part of a meal and it's it's something that has this great culinary history, you know, European history. But the way that we sell those things in the United States is so different from the way that you see them sold in Europe. Although Europe is beginning to absorb the the techniques of the United States. <laughs> I was really surprised when I was at home in the United States this summer, I was driving from Illinois to, to Michigan. So I was driving through Southwestern Michigan and marijuana has recently been legalized in Michigan. And I live in Portugal now, which is the country that people often cite as an example for why drugs should be legalized because it's been such an effective program here. But what I see happening with the legalization of marijuana in states like Michigan is so dramatically different from what I see with the legalization of marijuana here. You don't see advertisements here. Um, There's no marketing of marijuana and drugs in general, although they are decriminalized, they're not commercialized. So the idea with the decriminalization of drugs was to end the heroin epidemic in this country. So they, they decriminalized drugs so that they could set up programs where addicts, heroin addicts were able to get, you know, methadone treatment and rehabilitation. And I do think it's been very effective here, but you don't see any marketing of drugs. You do see marketing of wine and alcohol the regulations, I think, are a little bit stricter here than they are in the United States, although you're seeing a lot more marketing of wine and alcohol now than when I hear it's becoming much more sophisticated, sadly. But when I was driving from Illinois into Michigan and I got to the border of Michigan, I started passing billboards, great big billboards on I-94, and they were selling marijuana and they were selling hard seltzer. And they were selling gambling because there are casinos along there. So, so there would be a billboard every few miles. It would either be marijuana as this sort of relaxing, you know, kind of sophisticated, organic 
natural relaxant and you could call this number and it would be delivered or, you know, which I was just, my jaw dropped because I've never seen anything like that before. And then the next billboard would be for gambling. The next billboard would be for white claw and the white claw advertisements were really surprising to me too, because, you know, it looked like 15 year olds. They were just having so much fun. It was the most amazing thing ever to be drinking this great stuff. And the the combination of those three themes that I kept seeing over and over as I was driving through Southwestern Michigan were really disturbing to me. I, I felt like maybe there's not much regulation of what, you know, what we're doing with advertising. It was really disturbing. Well, a lot of that is state by state. And then even with this, in this, this first article that you shared with me, you talk about how on the, the today's show, you were talking about the adorable puppy and the Clydesdale horse with the anchor saying at the end, that's how you still and wind our hearts. Oh yes. And you know, that, that video clip has been removed. It's not there anymore. I, I went, that. I went to YouTube and I couldn't find it there. Yeah. There are a couple that was just perfectly said that was perfectly said i'm so sorry that clip is gone yeah can you say that again the clydesdales the clydesdales and the puppies yeah that's how you steal and win our hearts steal and win our hearts exactly yeah and that's the intention you know how could how could how could bud be anything other than your friend you know your all-american friend They've sold it. They've sold us the belief that they have our back in that yeah. video. If you watch. And it's little, just beer, right? It's just beer. <laughs> it's just beer. And so what's your the problem? Little, the little puppy gets out, gets away. And then he's finding his way back home. And a wolf goes to like, get the puppy. And then all these Clydesdales get out of their stalls and go protect the puppy. They've got the puppy's back. They've got that puppy's back. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there is so, you know, if you really wanted to take that advertisement apart, you could just, you know, have a, have a festival with it. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just love these articles that you, then the next one that you, you had sent me was about the cognitive dissonance, how, because they're selling us an idea, but really we, we know deep down inside, this isn't good for us, especially when we wake up and stuff. So we end up with that cognitive dissonance in our minds. Yeah. Yeah, and that one, there's some really fantastic articles in that one about the the history of cigarette marketing. Also, the history of our our knowing that alcohol is not heart healthy, that alcohol is not good for you. Something happened around the year uh, 2000, 1999. I I think it was like one study that came out that said that alcohol or that wine was heart healthy. And it was just, you know, it was exactly what everybody wanted to hear. So everybody wanted to think that wine was heart healthy. You know, that was like great news. Like dark chocolate is good for you. Great news, you know? Um, So that, that study just, you know, was everywhere. Everybody read that study. And I think that that study has been debunked that I I don't remember if, specifically which one it is it's in one of those articles somewhere it's been found that uh that that was actually under all the layers of funding funded by the alcohol lobby and so the the study is not is not valid and then the studies that were done more recently proving that 
that was not valid have been pushed under the rug. But the cognitive dissonance article goes back and looks at, at that a couple of years ago, even I think that article was published maybe two or three years ago. It goes all the way back to the 70s and, and what we were talking about then with health um, problems caused by alcohol. So we've, we've known this for a long time, just like we knew for a long time that, that cigarettes were bad for you, even when doctors were selling them, you know, we knew they were not good Doct- for us. I, doctors selling us cigarettes. Isn't that yeah. just crazy? And they yeah. know the destruction of just like what the, and then you have this other article you sent the genie in the bottle. You want to talk a little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah. That one is near and dear to my heart. That was one of the first things that I published publicly. And that was back when I was really focused on trying to expose everything that I could find about alcohol marketing that, and, and what I saw in it and how it had affected me or how it would affect me if I was still drinking. And I I felt like that was something important for me to do that lasted for a couple of years. And then I, I kind of got tired of it, (laughs) which is, it gets after a while, you know, you start to feel like, you know, it's just little tiny drops in this ocean of problems. And I would rather just focus on my community because that's something where I can make a difference. That article, The Genie in the Bottle, is written about something that one of my friends in my community pointed out to me back in 2015, I think. It was a new gin called anti-aging. And the idea with this gin was that it had, it was injected with collagen. So it was being promoted as skincare in a bottle. You know, if you drank this gin, it would, it would make you youthful. And I thought, wow, you know, I had just turned 50. I had just stopped drinking. And I knew that while I was drinking, as I was aging, one of the things that really concerned me was my skin. And I was buying really expensive skin creams and stuff like that, which I couldn't afford. And then when I stopped drinking, about a month after I stopped drinking, my skin started to plump. It started to look fresher. I started to lose the lines in my forehead. You know, those deep lines uh, are aggravated by alcohol. The muscle tone under my skin started to improve. So there was more resilience to my skin. And I started just using Nivea. You know, I got rid of the expensive skin creams. So I knew when I looked at that, that product, anti-aging skincare in a bottle, I thought, wow, you know, they're marketing this to me. They're marketing this to my generation. They're marketing to our insecurities. And the product creates the problem that they're saying it corrects. And I was, it it infuriated me. I was furious about that. (laughs) So I wrote that article and I did it with a couple of friends. We talked through a lot of those different things and we worked on it together. And that was one of the things that, that was in Huffington Post back when you still had to like, you know, kind of jury your articles. They took that one and published it. It's, it's a good article. I think there's a lot in it and it has a link that goes to another article on the history of cigarette marketing that I think is fascinating because you can draw the parallels between the two and they're really you know identical, the history of the two. It's amazing. But even, even in this article here, you write at the beginning of my second alcohol-free year, my skin is glowing. My metabolism has balanced out and I can pretty much eat what I want without worrying about my weight. For me, the biggest difference, however, is not how I look, but how I feel. At 51, I feel 10 years younger 
than I did at 49. I'm happier, more energized, more genuine and spontaneous. This new, completely sober, middle-aged me is full of creative drive and looking to the future with a zest I haven't felt since my late 20s. So here you were with this mindset, and then you see this anti the skinny girl cocktail stuff. That fired you up, didn't it? Did yeah, and I'll tell you why. You know, it, it's fun hearing that first paragraph again because I wrote that a long time ago. I haven't looked at it in years, and that's you know, it's it's interesting to write your way through this as you go along because you're in a different place each year, and that's where I was in my my second year. I was very focused on this. I live in Portugal, and I've lived in Portugal for the last twenty six, twenty seven years. So in Portugal, we did not have skinny girl cocktails. We did not have anti age gin. We did not have uh, mommy's sippy cup. We did not have mommy's, what is it? Mommy's timeout wine or mommy juice wine at that time. Because in, in this country, you know, there's the, one of the things that really surprised me when I first moved here is you walk into the grocery store and there were just aisles after aisles of wine because it's winemaking country. And there are aisles after aisles of olive oil as well. At that time, there weren't, in 1993, there weren't aisles after aisles of wine in the grocery stores in the United States. Now there are. But in Portugal, at that time, and until very recently, how alcohol was advertised was rather restricted. So you could advertise wine as a product of the land. You know, you could advertise it, you could have you could have a beautiful picture of a vineyard. You could have a, a picture of a family, big family at a table drinking wine as part of a, a celebration. But you couldn't advertise it as something that made you sexy. You couldn't advertise it as something you needed to relax. That kind of advertising now has, has come here and you see it much more. But when I saw the anti-age gin, when I saw the skinny girl cocktails, when I saw the mommy's timeout wine and the mommy juice and all of the like dish towels and pot holders and aprons that talk about, you know, mommy needs her wine and that kind of stuff. I got all of that kind of at once because I, I hadn't seen it, you know, and, and it, it made me really angry. I, it, it made me furious. I wanted yeah, to Yeah, you're right it. in here. Alcohol wrecks starve themselves with low calorie diets all day or week to allow for nightly binging or weekend party blowouts. And you say in here, Young women with alcohol-related liver disease rose 112%. And that was back in 26 May of 2016 when you wrote that. That was back in 2016. Yeah. The, and the problem was alcorexia, which is something that there were there were articles that I found um, from Ireland, from the United States, and from the UK talking about alcorexia, not just for young women, but also for young men, which is a, a syndrome like anorexia, where you starve yourself. But with alcorexia, you starve yourself with the intention of getting the fastest high you can get when you start drinking. And actually, the goal is to black out, so, which is really disturbing. But it's, you know, it's like any drug use with young people, there has a tendency to be this sort of um, trying to do it harder, better, faster than, you know, the last generation did. And the thing with alcorexia is that young people would, you know, they would starve themselves sometimes not even just for a day, but for a couple of days leading up into Friday and then start drinking to get trashed as quickly and as cheaply as possible before you hit the bars. It was causing a younger generation to get alcohol-related liver disease because if you if you drink on an empty stomach, it you know it has a much more intense effect 
on your liver. The interesting thing about the alkorexia, as extreme as that is, is that women from, from my generation, I, I haven't heard this so much from men, but in the group that I was talking to at that time, the women in, in my age group, like you know, 40 to 50 to 60, also had a tendency to do what I did, which was stop eating dinner and start drinking your dinner because you didn't want the extra calories. So instead of, because a glass of wine is good for me, I'm going to have a glass of wine instead of dinner, you know, and that's good for my heart. It's good for my heart health. But then because I'm actually kind of addicted to it, I'm going to have two or three, you know? <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So, it, and then you begin this whole cycle where you really do become addicted to it. And then you're drinking a bottle bottle and I have two bottles. So, yeah. Well, I remember doing that specifically, not eating so that I could get drunk and yeah. get wasted. Yeah, that's technically the technical term for that would be alcorexia. <laughs> and I had no idea until I read that. I was like, I didn't what? know that either. I didn't know I was alcorexic either. Yeah. And you've mentioned a little bit about it too, uh, why women are dying for a drink and what we can do. Yeah. Oh, that was, that one was, um, after somebody showed me see i generally speaking i've i've kind of moved away from being even aware of well it's not that i'm not aware i see the the alcohol marketing and i just kind of nod and smile and move along because what started to happen with me in the second year of of my being sober when i was looking at all this stuff and writing about it I started to find that it was just really kind of frustrating, you know, because like I said, you're just, you know, dropping drops in the ocean. So on, on the one hand, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to put a lot of energy into writing this article and I'm going to get it out there and I'm going to get it read and people are going to think differently. And it just doesn't really happen that way. You know? So that was a little frustrating. And I realized that rather than focusing so much on what was happening in the culture, it was more important to me to focus on the community of people who, who I was talking with, who were really trying to change. And that's a much more positive sort of focus for me. But occasionally someone will show me something that I'll just, you know, react to in this kind of drop jaw sort of way. And one of the things was the Janie Walker, which is, I think what I wrote the why women are drying, dying for a drink about. Yeah. I just found Janie Walker so offensive because the whole idea from Johnny Walker was that they were going to make, they were going to make their company more egalitarian. You know, we've got Johnny Walker. We need a Janie Walker for the women to feel, you know, empowered as well. And there is nothing that could be less empowering than Janie Walker, as far as I'm concerned at this time, when women are dying of alcohol related diseases at a much higher rate than ever before men with men the rate of of death from alcohol related diseases is actually coming down and with women it's going up very quickly and it's upsetting it's my generation and i i know why it's happening so well, when i they're see specifically marketing these women yeah now. they're targeting us and they have yes. been targeting us they have been targeting us you know, when I was growing up, I was thinking about this because I knew we were going to talk about alcohol marketing. When I was growing up, alcohol was mostly marketed to men. It was, you know, the, the thing that I remember the most from my childhood is the black velvet advertisements with the, the beautiful woman in the black velvet dress, you know, draped over the whiskey bottle, standing next to the whiskey bottle. And it was these huge billboards. And when I was in college, 
I was studying women's studies at University of Michigan and we were doing a political action, you know, and my political action was to uh, demonstrate against sexism in marketing. So I got up on one of those billboards and I was marching back and forth in front of you know, with my picket sign trying to get arrested. <laughs> I didn't get arrested. They didn't care. They, was, <laughs> they weren't interested. But for me, you know, alcohol marketing had always been directed at men. I, I was never, I never felt anything looking at that advertisement as a woman. I, it never made me for a second want to drink black velvet whiskey. It just had, it's for men. That advertisement's for men. It's not for me. And the beer advertisements and everything. There was, there was very little at that time directed at women. They started targeting us. Gosh, I think that. Well, this is 2019. So they started targeting, definitely started targeting women here in 2019. Walker. Oh, the Janie Walker. Yes. But, but even before, I mean, Janie Walker is just one of the most recent things. Um, You know, if, if you, if you go back to the beginning of this century, to the 1990s, it really, I think it probably really started in the mid 1990s. It, it really started that aggressive marketing to women, the manipulative marketing to women, the mommy juice, mommy's time out, the mommy sippy cup, all of that. I mean, they actually made, you know, Kathy Lee Gifford and Hoda on the Today Show who, who had this, this thing, I don't know if they're still doing it or not, it's so offensive, where they drink wine every day and every day of the week is named, you know, like, like after wine and it's a show that's on at 10 o'clock in the morning. It's just I've, I've ludicrous. Yeah. You know, yeah and they, and they, they defend it as, you know, what people do in Europe, people do not do that in Europe. I'm sorry. This is a wine producing company country and you don't see people in daytime television drinking wine. It's just, you know, it's just not <laughs> what people do here, but you know, Kathy Lee Gifford makes wine. She has a winery. I'm not exactly sure how that all started, but that started, I think, in the mid-1990s. And there was the, the wines that were made for women um, and just all of the products that were made for women about uh, wine. Like there was a, a wine rack sports bra and there was a purse that you could have a bottle of wine in and, and you could have like a little dispenser so that you could drink all day and nobody would know. And there was, <laughs> I thought about this a lot and I realized that, you know, maybe what happened is that the women who grew up in my generation, who then became marketing executives in the alcohol industry, they had the same mindset that I had because we grew up together. You know, we all grew up with the Anjali woman, um, the advertisement for Anjali perfume that so many of us identified with as little girls. We wanted to be that, you know, that woman who was everything for everyone and did it with style. And then in the late 1990s, when we were in our 40s, our 30s and our 40s, the marketing executives who were figuring out how to sell us these products um, had the same mindset. Well, you know, we know what women want to be. Women want to be everything. And it's exhausting to be everything. So what do women need? It's Miller time, you know, but, but we have to do this in a woman's way. So let's make it mommy's time out. Let's make it mommy juice. And, you know, I think, I think the thing that really blew my mind as I was in that second year sober, where I was really focused on the culture that I felt had created this generation of, of women who so many of us became addicted. There was a wine called Mommy Juice, which I found 
especially offensive <laughs> uh, because the message on the Mommy Juice website was was really, really well designed. It was very, very manipulative. It, you know, they really understood mothers and they really, cause it was made by a mother and they really understood how to kind of get into your head and make you feel like you did deserve it. And it was okay. And it was fine to actually really get drunk every night, as long as the baby was asleep, you know, and they just really, you know, it just, as I was reading through their website, it just made me angrier and angrier and angrier because it was what happened to me, even without being sold that, that's what happened to me. And I know it happened to so many people. There was a lawsuit from another wine called Mommy's Time Out. Mommy Juice was much more successful than Mommy's Time Out, but Mommy's Time Out apparently came first. So Mommy's Time Out sued Mommy Juice for the right to having Mommy on their label so that Mommy Juice shouldn't be allowed to have it on their label. And I thought, that's it. You know, the courts are going to say, you can't advertise your wine this way. But no, Mommy's Time Out won the lawsuit. <laughs> there was no concern about using the idea that mommies need to drink on the label. And, you know, we have a culture in the United States where freedom is very important to us. And I, I think that that is very important. Freedom is very, very important. But there has to be some level of responsibility when you're marketing a drug. And alcohol is a drug, just like oxycodone is a drug. You know, if, if we marketed heroin, can you just, can you imagine the outrage? Nobody would be concerned about freedom of speech if we were marketing heroin. So when, when that happened, I, I kind of pulled back from it all a little bit. And I thought, you know, I'm swimming upstream here with talking about this. It's just, it's time to focus on something else. And that was community building, you know, rather than well, ranting. I'm glad rating. that you focused on it and that you wrote about it because now we have all these articles from that time in your writings where you can use them now. And it's, it's yeah. really important. I mean, because even right now with the Super Bowl coming up and that's why we're talking about marketing a little bit uh, on this podcast today, is the way everybody's being marketed. So let's kind of wrap this up. And what would you tell anybody for the Super Bowl that's coming up? What, what are some advice you would give them to get through the people that don't want to drink? Because they're going to be influenced. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, in the first place, um, I did put together an article today that I'm going to share in my community, um, Boomer Thinks a Drink. And it just has some, some perspective on the marketing and, and what it's, what it's about. And it has some, uh, the documentary, the BBC documentary is in there. There's another really excellent video on alcohol marketing by, oh gosh, I can't remember her name right now, but it's in the article and I'll, I'll link that up for you. I, I would say it's a really good idea. If it's your first alcohol free Super Bowl Sunday, it's a really good idea to be prepared you know, you need to be mentally prepared to say, okay, this is what it's going to feel like. I'm going to be with these people and we're going to be in this place and there's going to be this kind of food and there's going to be this kind of drinks and it's going to be a certain kind of mood. What am I going to take with me to drink? And how am I going to, how am I going to approach questions that people might ask so that you're ready to answer if somebody says, oh, you know, why aren't you drinking today? So that you don't get yourself into a situation where you feel like you have to say, I've stopped drinking or I'm not drinking because I'm an alcoholic or, you know, it can become really stressful. So make it easier on yourself. Just say, I'm not drinking today. 
taking antibiotics. Um, I have a urinary tract infection, too much information, you know, something like that. Just, you know, give your, give yourself an out so that it's just fine that you're drinking whatever wonderful alcohol-free drink you brought with you. And, you know, I used to, even before I stopped drinking, I would go through periods where I decided I was going to stop. I would stop for a week and then I would start again. But if I went to a party during one of those weeks, I would take this, you know, huge jug of home-brewed tea. And it was usually, it was usually green and mint. Sometimes it was like a, a red tea, which is, you know, great big mason jar with like, you know, five, six liters in it. And people would share it with me. They would love it. You know, it, it became like the thing on the table that everybody started to drink when their mouths got too dry from all the, all the wine or whatever. So take something fun to drink um, or have something fun that's alcohol free to drink. Stay in touch with your community. You know, in, in our community, we have something called the Lou Club. And that's, you know, you go into the bathroom with your phone. If you're at a party or you're out to dinner or you're someplace out in public and you're feeling stressed and you just, you go into boom and you, you title your post Lou club and you say, help, you know, <laughs> you oh, say whatever's that. bugging that's you. That's so and, cool. Yeah. Isn't that great? That's yeah. great. If anyone needs the Lou club on Super Bowl Sunday, make sure that you sign up for boom, rethink the drink. You can come in and talk to us if you need to about it. And I'm going to, I'm going to put up a post to my community this week and I'm going to ask everybody, you know, if, if you're doing Super Bowl Sunday, what are your plans and, and what are your ideas and you know, what, what's your ex past experience? And we'll put together a post. I'll put together a post from that for booze musings. But I think that, that oftentimes the first time you do an event like that, alcohol free, it's always a little uncomfortable because you're used to drinking. And if everyone else is drinking and you're used to drinking in that situation, it's, it's awkward. And so I think that it's important to be prepared for it. And if you are prepared for it, it's often not as difficult as you think it's going to be. There's going to be a huge payoff when you make it through because it just gives you more courage that you can do this. It'll yeah. And I'll tell you my, my, the biggest challenge that I remember in my first year, there were lots of challenges, but the biggest challenge, because I was eight months sober was December, the whole month, you know, and I wasn't expecting it to be such a challenge, but it had been years since I'd gone shopping, wrapped presents, made cookies, decorated without drinking. And I found, I found myself kind of paralyzed, you know, I, I just couldn't move. And I'm a big kind of achiever. So not being able to do those things was really awkward and really uncomfortable. But I had a wonderful Christmas that year. I had my kids take, you know, responsibility for things. My daughter wrapped the presents. My son made the cookies. My husband and my kids decorated the tree. I sat there with my feet up drinking hot chocolate. You know, I got to the day after Christmas. And I'll, I remember because I was posting to my community. So, you know, you remember these things if you type it out and you pick an image and you post it. I found an image. I woke up on the 26th and I just felt like I could just shoot to the moon. I was so happy because I made it, you know, I made it. I survived. Yeah. And I found this, this picture of like a, a drawing of a girl on a motorcycle with, you know, like sparks shooting at the back and she had like a rainbow and everything. And I was just like, yay. <laughs> so yeah, it. it's rewarding. It is rewarding. Yeah. Okay, and then we're gonna put. I'm gonna put links up on Sober Town with that that article that you just did too. So people that'll help people get in there to find your. And I'll put this in the article when you're done editing it. Yep. Okay, and everybody, thank you very much for joining us. We have 
Winged Victory, aka Wingy, with us from Booze Musings and Boom Rethink the Drink. And I just love you. I love your community. And remember, everybody, pour the poison down the sink. And then you have your own uh, model, too, that you say, right? I, my favorites, you know, I had to when I first because I'm not a marketing expert. When I first started this project, I had to think of what am I going to say? What am I going to say? So my my favorites of the, the mottos that I came up with are um, open your mind to the possibilities. The spirit is not in the bottle. It's in you. Boom. I love that. When Boom. You said that to me. <laughs> yeah. I know. And that, that's why I love your community too, because I've always been boom. Everything's boom with me. It's a lot of times it helps me from saying more. It stops me from saying too much. I'll, boom. And then I've stopped <laughs> talking. Right? That's but why we I started, were meant to find each other. Yeah. Yeah, we were. And I'm just having a blast. So thank you everybody for joining us and we will see you soon because you and I are going to do more. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, everybody.